This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the book on BFM 89.9. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Buy the Book. I'm Lee Chui Lin. Joining me, as always, my fellow um, enjoyer of adventure, Shamila Ganesan. Hello. Um, and today we have with us a special guest, uh, William Tham, author, of course, of The Last Days. Uh, William was last on to actually talk about his novel, but today he's joining us for our book club episode in which we all talk about the experience of reading uh, one particular book, this time chosen by William. And today we are going to be talking about Tanya Di Rosario's Somewhere Else, Another You, which is, um, I think it's fair to call it a sort of existential choose your own adventure kind of novel um and i thought william we could start with you telling us about why it is that you wanted to uh, talk about this book today or you know share the reading experience for this book in particular uh, it's sort of rooted in uh, where i was at the time when i came across it um so since solved this strange um quarter life crisis well, I thought I was navigating out of that. Uh, I think I might still be doing that to some degree right now. Uh, but anyway, this book happened to, I happened to come across it at that particular point in time. So at first, it, so at first I think it first caused my, caught my attention because of uh, the ideas that it played with, uh, sort of uh, combining, well, all that stuff together with uh, well theories of the multiverse. So um, I had always, I had always liked the kind of concept. So I picked it up and, but it sort of grew on me. And the strangest thing was that during the first MCO last year, it actually became a very comforting book in many ways, partly because it, because it didn't set out to be particularly happy or cheerful to start in, to begin with. So in many ways, it was quite a grounded. It, was a, it actually made for a very grounded reading and in its own strange way became oddly comforting. Uh, mostly because they're so frank about so many different things. Uh, at least that's uh, my particular experience with it. And I'm curious about how the, what the two of you think about it in, uh, in your thoughts. It was a for me even from the get go. It was a it was a quick sell because I I I love anything that sort of plays around with structure, and um, I've always loved the idea of the choose your own adventure, pick your own path sort of books. Of course, they were a very particular childhood kind of thing, but I've noticed now that a lot of writers have been experimenting with that form to to do something that's more interesting. Um, and of course, this uses that structure, but to to a really interesting effect, right? And it also draws on a whole bunch of things that I'm sort of peripherally interested in. So quantum mechanics, um, as you said the idea of a multiverse so what I really liked about the book I think was that um, it's rare that the form and the ideas match so well um, in this one it really does right so the the uh, choose your own path format is used to exactly dwell on that idea of well, what happens if every choice you make creates a new world and what is happening in that world and those parallels? Um, I I really enjoyed it and I, I get what you're saying, why it offers a kind of odd comfort because I think at a time when we're feeling stuck, um, at a time when it feels like there is no alternative to this, I think there's a kind of odd comfort in reading about those alternatives. 
It's freedom, isn't it? I mean, it offers a strange sense of freedom, but freedom within very specific constraints, because ultimately you are still treading down a specific number of paths. There are still only two to three options, but there is still the freedom to choose, which in our current real life capacity, oddly enough, I think we find lacking. Um, I don't know how much I can say of the story without lapsing into into either spoiling it or uh, wrongly in some ways describing what the book's actually about. But it does take place, um, I, I think we can safely say that it takes place among catastrophes, both large and personal, right? So um, at the very beginning, at the outset, there appears to be something that uh, could actually threaten our existence. But at the same time, uh, the the protagonist, who is you, right, because it's written in that style, um, is also going through an, an emotional trauma, is also working through what it means for a relationship to uh, to end or working through what it means to dwell in specific parts of your relationship, being unable to move on. And the book's different pathways and storylines essentially navigate those different things. And for that reason, I, I'm in agreement with the both of you in that I think that it's a good, um, it's a good pandemic read because it perhaps, you know, aside from the freedom, aside from the groundedness, it also doesn't sugarcoat what it means to feel some measure of pain. At least that was my experience reading it. Also, it's a small book. It's a very small book. And I don't mean that as a bad thing. I think um, focus is something a lot of people are struggling with at this time. Um, and so the fact that um, it's it's such a sort of slim book that offers so much within that space uh, was a really big advantage for me. Uh, that's I think it's something that I, I'd agree with as well in well, my first time reading it, I, I, was, I was actually on a train journey. So it's sort of like a, a regular commute. And well, basically before I got off the train, then I got into, uh, got into the entire book. Uh, this, but I think the beauty of it is, again, because of the whole choose your own adventure format, then there's always a temptation to go through the book again and again to try and see where uh, your options, your choices will take you. Uh, I mean, by exactly that takes you as an uh, entirely different story in itself. Uh, but as, and, but also, it, and also it, in many ways, it got me started on um, going back in, well, going back to reading, well, stuff that had to do more with uh, physics, with science. That's, that was actually sort of my background before this. Um, I've kind of uh, stepped off the path from that. But um, afterwards, uh, this, this got me going back into it. And again, thinking of like a, uh, ideas of uh, con confluences between, well, it's what seemed to be two different worlds, two different cultures at the start. So, and that was the other thing that, uh, that, in case, that, I, that I found most interesting about this because it was actually written during a write in residence program at the Center for Quantum Technologies, which seemed, so at first, at first glance seemed like the strangest thing that you could, the, the strangest two things they could pair together, but, uh, to get it, it seemed to work perfectly well. So I think this is something we I've been seeing happen slightly more often now, the merging of the arts and the sciences, uh, whether they're talking about getting um, artists and writers to talk about what it's like to be in the space shuttle, or um, in this case, National University of Singapore getting a writer to do a residency with their Center for Quantum Technologies. I found that actually a really interesting aspect of this book, because then you realize that this is the product of that merging of paths. 
Yeah, um, also because the merging is a good word in that I don't think that the science is overly obtrusive in the book, so much so that you would call this a science fiction book. It really did not feel that way. Instead, um, I think it's more of a, a poetic observation of what science could mean to us, right? Or um, the different ways in which we could be thinking about quantum mechanics, about multiverses um, in a non-comic book way, for example. Uh, the other thing I wanted to know before we uh, close off on this side and before we start talking, I think, in um, more detail about things like the writing style, I wanted to know how you both read it because there is always the temptation with Choose Your Own Adventure books to ignore that and just sort of read it through and uh, therefore gain strange glimpses into other paths, you know, and as you're flipping through, you can also view like, oh, okay, so I know at some point we're going to go to that other country. I'm curious to know whether you were both very strict with yourself about, okay, no, I'm only going to head to page 27. I'm only going to go to page 19. I'm not going to look around. I initially was, um, but then I realized also that with this book in particular, I think the point might be that it doesn't matter. It, it can be quite elliptical in that sense that it um, it sort of leads you back to parts that you thought you had decided not to go on. Um, it, it sort of uh, sometimes intersects between itself. So after a while, I sort of lost that formalness of, no, no, I must see every path and, and just sort of let it take me on the journey. Um, the first time, the first few times around, I stuck, I stuck to the instructions. Uh, after a bit, then I sort of gave up because I wanted to, I wanted to get a, an idea of what the whole structure itself uh, looked like and there's quite a lot there's a very odd beauty about it if you even if you go from even if you read it just from page one to the end because uh, the different again different episodes they all seem to come together in very interesting forms well in some cases they differ slightly so but i think it's part of the fun of it although i did have a scientist friend who read the book in five minutes because he just wanted to see where it went so the main thing he had to say afterwards was, yeah, the science checks up. <laughs> I think the joys of the multiversal story um, actually show up a little bit more when you start breaking the rules because the book is playful enough to accommodate that kind of flipping around, I think anyway. But um, anyway, we're talking today about a sort of existential, scientific, philosophical, choose-your-own-path book, uh, Tanya Di Rosario's Somewhere Else, Another You. Um, and we are talking about it, of course, with William Tham, author of The Last Days. Um, let us know what you think. Do you like choose-your-own-adventure books? Have you read this particular book? Are you keen now? You can let us know by WhatsApping 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Bruce Freddie Morrissey, BFM. 89.9. Hello, everybody. This is still, of course, by the book with Lynn and Sharmila. And speaking to us today is William Tam, uh, author of The Last Days. And William's talking to us about a book that he actually recommended to us for our monthly book club, Tanya De Rosario's Somewhere Else, Another You. So I wanted to talk about writing because so far we focused a lot on the structure and the content, which because it is a choose-your-own-adventure book, makes sense. That's where we would start. But I think that the whole thing would fall apart if um, the writing weren't really engaging and beautiful. Because in the first place, the conceit um, 
of the book is it's written in the, I don't even know what voice this is. What voice is this? Second person voice. Second, okay. Yes. So it's written uh, from the point of view of you being the you. So every chapter is you take a step, you encounter this person. And so when you have um, what is fundamentally that sort of conceit even coming into the book, I think the rest of the story then has to be instantly immersive. And for me, it was. I think that I... So I've often found the second person voice a little awkward, right? Because if you're not invested, it loses you. Um, And I think the strength of this book is that you really are invested. You may not be going through the breakup that the protagonist is. You may not be um, dealing with the same sorts of existential crises, but somehow you feel like you are. And I think that goes down to the strength of the writing. Um, It also doesn't, I think it also goes down to the strength of the length of the book, because I don't think they could have sustained this for a, a, a sort of a full length novel. But for this format, for this length, it really draws you in. Uh, that I would agree with that uh, for sure, and but uh, but yes, uh, there's also the power of uh, the individual again, like individual bits of uh, uh, prose, uh, individual bits of uh, poetry that does come through in a book, and they do touch upon uh, uh, just so many philosophical questions, and it's and it's just brought about in a way that uh, you know doesn't sound it doesn't sound condescending or patronizing. It's just it just flows. I think it's the the magic of it, how you can just bring all of this across. That and also the amount of space that it holds for you to step into the character, I think is very important because, um, again, when the reader is the you, uh, there is a certain amount of, uh, of, of immersion and relatability that has to happen, that has to take place. And so I think... But at the same time, you also have to know who the character is that you're reading about. You have to know if you actually want to populate this character, if this person is an appropriate avatar for you within the universe of the book. And so I think the for me, the cleverest trick of the book is the way that it lets you know who this person is. There is a sequence in which, for example, uh, they're cooking a dish. And uh, that felt like a very personal, intimate act. And you get to understand a lot of who they are and how they approach, for example, loving someone else. Um, but at the same time, it leaves you room to also infuse your own personality and therefore make those choices. And to me, that was one of the cleverest tricks of the way the book plays with the idea of character. So I, I I like that that particular scene or sequence that you talked about. It was, and I think it draws on something that the book does really well, which is sort of use a really poetic, lyrical way of writing um, to reflect on very everyday things. And the sort of thing perhaps that you wouldn't expect in a book that also tells you to choose your own adventure. Um, there's one sequence that takes place in the uh, Gardens by the Bay in Singapore. And, and that has that same quality of a, a sort of a dreamy, lyrical way of writing. Um, and, and you said character, Lynn, and I find that very interesting because um, this book is oddly sort of, it has characters, but you're also not hugely invested in them. But I don't think that's a bad thing because of that dreamy feel of the whole thing. Uh, and, then, and also I suppose it opens it up to, uh, well, basically the characters uh exist as shells in many ways, so you can just fill them in with, um, uh, well, fill them in based on, I suppose you can even, even draw to some degree from your own personal experience, experiences and everything. So which I think it adds to the personal nature of it because there's, 
it's they're not really they don't really seem to be fixed in stone, not completely fleshed up. So there's room for them to uh, to mold themselves in in the imagination to actually feel personally uh, right there. I think that also extends to a fluidity towards uh, gender and sexuality, which is again something that is an I think um, an important component in the book, right? Because um, when you when you enter and you encounter sort of different um, different loved ones, different interests, different ways of relating to people, um, it's interesting to note that you're never really anything um, in terms of a specific gender. You're never told, um, you know, I don't know how you would be told actually, even in a book like this, but you're never explicitly told that you are a man, you are a woman. This is how the world treats you. And so for that reason, I also thought it was interesting to watch this character kind of move through the world because again, the the book has um, deeply, deeply personal chapters, which we're touching on, but it also has workplace chapters, you know, just very simple things about going into work, not liking who you're working with and facing a crisis. And uh, I think considering the different ways in which men and women move through STEM, for example, um, you know, a well-documented thing, the way the book plays with that and doesn't land on either side was also kind of a, like, I enjoyed that element of it a lot as well. It's so interesting because it actually took me like half the book or half the stories or journeys before I realized that I was completely assuming you was a woman Mm. because I was a woman. But then I I suddenly realized that the book doesn't actually make it that clear um, and that I was clearly projecting. And I suppose that speaks to the success of what it's trying to do. Uh, But yeah, 100%, I think suddenly when you realize that um, actually a man and a woman or, um, you know, whatever you might identify as would probably react and be reacted to very differently in these um, sequences that the story is talking about. But but it's almost like um, you think of it from your point of view. And I think, and I, th- I think it helps it along the ambiguity here because uh, practically none of the characters have names. I mean, well, this, I mean, one of the central characters does have a uh, does have a name, but then beyond that, then the, the rest of the characters just seem uh, amorphous in many ways. I thought we could close off uh, by talking about the experience of rereading because it is a book that's new to both myself and Sharmila. But William, I mean, you said that you encountered it in the first MCO, which of course feels like 50 years ago, but really it was just uh, last year, and um, that you've reread it since. What has that been like for you, the process of rereading what is sort of a very deceptively simple and um, very short book? Ah, okay, so the MCO also was actually my second reading of it. So I came across it about a year uh, a year before that. I think it's a year before that. Time has this weird uh, habit of of uh, sort of like uh, condensing itself now. Um, so the first time around it, first, the first time around it was thought provoking. It was a bit of an escape. Uh, when reading it during the MCO, then I was like, oh gosh, this this all hits very close to home now. But again, that's but again because it. It isn't sugar-coated anyway, it just, it's just there. It's very blunt, but there's a comfort in being blunt and not uh, being, well, sort of like leaving too much room for for too much optimism, but telling you exactly where you are and how to go about it. Uh, so after the MCO, the first MCO passed and things went sort of back to normal, uh, 
think my future, ex- my f- so after that, my experiences of rereading the book, um, they didn't feel quite as salient. But a lot of it, I think, has to do, I think it's by the power of it because it draws a lot from where you are when you're reading it and uh, the way that the book uh, opens it itself up to being read in so many different circumstances, juxtaposing the personal, uh, juxtaposing the personal, juxtaposing it with, um, well, sort of like the nature of existence and all that. I think there's, there's quite a lot of power in it. So it speaks to, it can speak to virtually anyone at any point in time. I just wanted to say that for me, rereading this is the same vibe as rereading poetry. I don't think of it as a novel that I sort of um, need to think about, well, do I want to sit with this for a day or two or three days? Uh, instead, it's almost like because of the structure, you don't need to complete it either, right? You can go on a couple of parts and stop. So um, I would quite happily reread this, but in the same way that I would happily pick up a poetry book and read a couple and then put it down again. I think that um, this is, again, and William, you said this, it's so much a product of its time. Like any book, it depends on when you read it, where you are in your life. And uh, perhaps because because my first encounter of it is knowing that we're going to come to a discussion, I'm looking forward to recommending it to someone else and asking them to read it. And then we talk about it because I really feel that um, because of all the things that we've discussed different people are going to have such, such different impressions of where they end up in the book and even the adventures that they go on, that it's really a book that's um, rather lovely to talk about and to share in that capacity. So um, we've been talking today about Tanya Di Rosario's Somewhere Else, Another You, which is a um, existential, philosophical, science infused choose your own adventure book um, let us know if you've read it or if you plan to you can of course uh, whatsapp us 018-789-8899 you can tweet us at bfm radio uh, william thank you so much for joining us today thank you for having me on for this this was quite a bit quite a bit of fun to talk about um, and that was of course william tham author of the last days joining us for this month's book club <music> brings us to footnotes. Um, So as we alluded to in the body of that book club, a lot of uh, the book Somewhere Else, Another You is also about a personal disintegration of sorts, Um, essentially the process of going going through a breakup, I think. And that got us thinking about the best books that have done that. Um, it is a ripe subject for many reasons. I think heartbreak is always great for art, uh, maybe not so great for the personal life. But because of that, we thought we could talk about books that have focused on that. And we've actually done a number of this in the past. Most recently, in fact, our uh, book club last month, Laurie Gottlieb's Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which is one of those that comes up a lot in these lists. Yes, and it, it directly deals with the uh, author, the the psychologist, her breakup and how that sort of leads to this um, unearthing of her own uh, past experiences and her own issues and challenges and leads to essentially making a case for therapy. Uh, The other book that comes to mind, which we've also done a book club on, is of course uh, Sally Rooney's Normal People. Um, I, I love that book so much and I think it's because it deals with one particular aspect of breaking up, right, which is the um, the breaking up and getting back together that never quite happens and then we move away and then what if and, and you also see characters grow up through this and 
I think there's a particular kind of pain and also realism in reading about that because it's something that I think most people would identify with at least to a certain extent. So I cannot recall anymore whether I brought this up at the time, but um, normal people reminds me and has always reminded me a little bit of uh, One Day by David Nichols, which was also made into a movie. It, it's different, um, but it's it's different in structure, it's different in story, but it's similar in that it tells the story of young love and young indecisive love and how painful it can be when it ends, especially when it ends with the hope that one day you will come back together. So uh, I just wanted to throw that in there. I also, um, while we're talking about breakups, just a brief one. Another famous book that deals with this is Nick Hornby's High Fidelity. Top five things I miss about Laura. One, sense of humor. Very dry, but it can also be warm and forgiving. And she's got one of the best all-time laughs in the history of all-time laughs. She laughs with her entire body. Two, she's got character. Or at least she had character before the Ian nightmare. She's loyal and honest. and She doesn't even take it out on people when she's having a bad day. That's character. Three, I miss her smell and the way she tastes. It's a mystery of human chemistry, and I don't understand it. Some people, as far as your senses are concerned, just feel like home. I really dig how she walks around. It's like she doesn't care how she looks or what she projects, and it's not that she doesn't care. It's just she's not affected, I guess, and that gives her grace. And five... She does this thing in bed when she can't get to sleep. She kind of half moans and then rubs her feet together an equal number of times. It just kills me. And the reason why I enjoy it is because I think in general, Nick Hornby is a wonderful writer. He's somebody that I really enjoy um, for that sort of wry observational touch and deep obsession uh, with things like football and music. But one reason why I like High Fidelity as an entry is because there are actually not that many books that... Uh, deal with how men specifically deal with breaking up. Um, if you look at the romance genre, it's rife with, um, you know, freshly minted divorces in their 40s hitting the town or, or what have you. But there aren't that many equivalents uh, for for guys, essentially. And High Fidelity really does that. You have someone who is essentially a guy's guy who runs a record store um, and who is dealing with his breakup in all the ways you would think he would, but at the same time is really very deeply hurt by it and figuring out how to reckon with it. And I, I enjoyed that read a lot, especially because it's very funny. I was going to talk, talk about High Fidelity exactly for that reason. So I'm glad you brought it up. There are very, very few books that are either not hugely existential when it comes to men and heartbreak. And I don't know that I always love those. Um, Nick Hornby does it in the same way that Helen Fielding does with Bridget Jones, right? Um, in that it's a very specific straight man point of view, but it's not an it's not a superficial one, uh, but it's an easy read. It's also a funny read at most times, but it's a very good book. High Fidelity um, is one of those books that I think I could reread again and again and, and still find something new to enjoy. So did you have um, another book that you wanted to bring up? So the book that immediately came to mind, and that's because I very recently read it as well, um, was a book by Nora Ephron, um, which is Heartburn. The first day, I did not think it was funny. I didn't think it was funny the third day, either, but I managed to make a little joke about it. 
The most unfair thing about this whole business, I said, is that I can't even date. Well, you had to be there, as they say, because when I put it down on paper, it doesn't sound funny. But what made it funny, trust me, is the word date, which, when you say it out loud at the end of a sentence, has a wonderful teenage quality. And since I am not a teenager, okay, I'm 38, and since the reason I was hardly in a position to date on first learning that my second husband had taken a lover was that I was seven months pregnant. I got a laugh on it. Though, for all I know, my group was only laughing because they were trying to cheer me up. It's an autobiographical novel. So essentially, she wrote about her own breakup with her husband. Um, so her, her her divorce, really, um, from Carl Bernstein. Um, and so she kind of uses that as a spin-off to write a, a fictional story, but sort of very thinly veiled. You can kind of tell she's talking about their own marriage, about a food writer and how she breaks up with her husband. And in true Nora Ephron style, again, it's very, uh, it's it's got a lot of humor. It's got a lot of sly humor. It's got recipes. As a food writer, she kind of uses food and the act of cooking um, as a counterpoint and as a way of almost dealing with the really difficult emotions that she's going through at that time. It's such a good book. It, again, it's one of those books that I think doesn't belabor the heartbreak part. It's real, but like a lot of life, life goes on. And I like that quality about that book. I'm glad that you brought up a lighter book or that we've had some lighter recommendations because um, I wanted to close off with a book that isn't technically about breakups, but that is often recommended um, as a good book to read. Partly because I think um, if you look at the literature when it comes to talking about how we think about things like breakup and divorce, um, very often it is grief, right? Grief is the word that comes up and you're not just grieving the loss of the relationship, you're grieving the loss of the person you were in the relationship, you're grieving the loss of the person you knew. And um, I thought, therefore, we could talk about a book that really takes a reporter's look um, and a poetic look at the whole notion of grief. And that is Joan Didion's um, The Year of Magical Thinking, which, of course, documents how she dealt with her husband, John Dunn's passing. I realize as I write this that I do not want to finish this account, nor did I want to finish the year. The craziness is receding, but no clarity is taking its place. I look for resolution and find none. I did not want to finish the year because I know that as the days pass, as January becomes February and February becomes summer, certain things will happen. My image of John at the instant of his death will become less immediate, less raw. It will become something that happened in another year. My sense of John himself, John alive, will become more remote. She does it in classic Joan Didion fashion. I mean, if you've ever read any Joan Didion, then you know she's famous for a certain um, degree of beauty in her writing, but also a sort of um, journalistic detachment that she tends to apply towards these things. And she does that to her own process of grieving. But it weaves a whole portrait of, I guess, um, looking at the incident, what else could have happened, um, how wishing hard enough for something to not have happened isn't going to make it so, um, how things could have changed, pivotal moments. And it applies all that to a book that is really very beautiful, but also very, very sad. And um, 
it's not one that I reread often for that reason. But in I think, you know, in times of struggle, um, it is a book that I've gone back to. The Year of Magical Thinking um, is a book that I've wanted to read so many times, have approached so many times, and then sort of backed away. And exactly for that reason, that um, I always feel like it's going to take a lot out of me and that I need to pick a time when I can cope with those feelings. And and I don't think that's a bad thing, because I think one of the reasons why people read books about heartbreak and breakup is for catharsis, is for a certain level of being able to see the feel to see the feelings that you feel expressed in words by someone else can be hugely, hugely helpful, um, but not always the, the easiest experience to go through. So we've been talking about uh, books that either deal with breakups or that are good to read post-breakup, I suppose, in some ways. And we've been doing that because the main body of our show today was a book club, which focused on Tanya Di Rosario's Somewhere Else Another You, which actually grapples with some of these questions. Let us know, though, I mean... Do you have go-to books, I suppose, that help you through heartbreak? Do you have books that you uh, that are about heartbreak that you specifically enjoy? You can, of course, WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, and write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.